ahead and get started. What we're gonna do, I really wanna open up with a song. Um, and we're gonna listen a little bit to another song with Jamila Woods in a little bit. But one of the grounding things for me, because I have been in church like since I was nine, is to open up spaces with just singing um, and just meditation. And so we're gonna do that tonight on Zoom. I'm gonna sing a short little ditty and we're gonna get into our topic tonight. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Great is thy faithfulness, O Lord. Great is thy faithfulness, the steadfast love of our Lord. Never see, he says, God's mercy never comes to an end. They are new every morning, new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness, O Lord. Great is thy faithfulness. Whatever you may be coming in here this evening with, stress and worries of the day, sickness and disease, worrying over children, worrying over finances, worrying over your house, worrying over anything, the brakes on the car, whatever it is, I invite you to come and lay those things down and be completely present so that you can take hold of what the Lord has for you this evening and so that you can share space with others. As the song says, and as the scripture says, great is the faithfulness of God. Great is the faithfulness of the divine. God loves, she loves, and I imagine God to be this big black woman with this beautiful fro and even bigger earrings God's mercy is new every single morning. So no matter what you're carrying, know that God's mercy, this is here for you, God's love. 
is here for you. Amen and ashe. Great is God's faithfulness. Amen. Tonight, we're going to be talking about the gospel according to a Black woman. That's why we're here, is to share and delight in this book um, that I wrote. <laughs> and so I'm going to delight in my own writing. Um, we are going to read, well, I'm going to read from the introduction. And we're going to do some reading and we're going to do some writing. We're going to do a combination of both this evening. Um, but I want to read from the introduction because I feel like it really contextualizes the book and what I'm talking about. And so if you have it with you, it's on the bottom of page seven. I must be honest, when I initially landed on the title of this book, The Gospel According to a Black Woman, I hesitated. And let me tell you where I landed on that title. I was at sitting at Seward Co-op on Franklin. It was in January. Uh, 2020. So it was a few months right before COVID. I can't remember if I had the flu or not, but I know it was in January 2020 and I was sitting. I think I could even remember the table I was sitting at when I landed on the title of, of the book. Ashe means I'm in for the person who put that in the chat, by the way. It's another way of saying I'm in. So when I initially landed on the title of this book, The Gospel According to a Black Woman, I hesitated. I wondered if by calling it the gospel, if I was doing too much, was I being too boastful or even bordering on sacrilege and blasphemy? But the meaning of the word derives from the Koine Greek word, which means good news or truth. I'm not going to try to say it because my Greek is really, really poor right now. I studied it in seminary. We don't want me to pronounce Greek today. Historically, this word has been mostly used in Christian circles, specifically by disciples of Jesus to testify about his works of healing, sacrifice, healing, deliverance, and salvation. The first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, claim this, opening their respective works with the phrase, the gospel according to, to assert spiritual authority. This assertion was necessary in the face of extreme violence from the Roman Empire who silenced anyone posing a threat to their kingdom. Claiming spiritual authority outside of Rome was not only a radical act, it was also a deadly one. So as I ruminated on this title, I questioned whether or not I could apply the same literary device as these authors did. In stating and naming my truth, my witness, could I be so bold as to take the word and claim it as my own? As you see, I landed on yes. I said yes because the truth of my experience navigating systems, the government, the church, the academy, the nonprofit sector, the business sector is valid. My perspective as a Black woman in the United States in 2020, now 2022, is valid. My witness is truth regardless of the credentials I hold or whether anyone else will believe or validate me. And for me to speak the truth and claim spiritual authority is critical in a society that continuously ignores and devalues Black women. And so I did this on purpose because a lot of time Black women don't get to claim any type of authority, particularly spiritual authority. In the original title, I qualified the word Black woman with the word liberated. There were reasons for this. When I first compiled this collection of poems and reflections back in 2017, I initially thought of them as a story showing how I confronted some areas of my life to find healing and liberation. As I continued to write and revise my original manuscript, I saw that this book collection was bigger than the truth of my journey. 
Although it includes the story of my journey, it is also about the truth of so many other Black women with whom I share similar stories of triumph, struggle, heartache, and pain. I also removed the word liberated because I didn't want to use it as a barometer to validate my witness. For the same reason, I am careful not to list or boast of other qualifiers here, not because they don't exist, but because the world needs to become more comfortable listening to Black women, period. We need not prove our worth through our education, expertise, social media following, occupation, marital status, religion, ministerial credentials, or any other thing that exists, though we often possess all of these qualifiers and are still not taken seriously. We can and we will exist as we are. And it happens so much, the qualifiers, right? I remember last year, a newspaper, I used to be a part of the Assemblies of God denomination, a newspaper asking me, like they had wanted to interview me for this book, The Gospel According to a Black Woman. And they, so I had talked about the book. I talked about all these wonderful things. And then they came back and they asked for the names of my then spouse and my children. And I'm like, what does it have to do with the writing of this book? What does it have to do? What does my marital status have to do with the article? And it felt like, and they never published the article in the first place, but it felt like they were looking for um, a means to qualify me, a means to validate me. And now that I'm on the other side of that, that marriage, now that I'm on the other side of a many of those things, it's like, will I still be validated? Will I still be taken seriously? Um, even though I don't have some of the qualifiers that society typically looks for to like, society isn't going to validate black women anyway, but if they do validate you, you got to be a Christian, you got to be married, you got to be walking a straight and narrow. And I'm like, pause. Because God says that I'm enough as I already am. So whether I'm married or going through a divorce or separation, whether I got education behind my name, whether I'm walking the straight or narrow or not, my truth is valid and is good enough. And the literature of Black women has really helped me understand that and have pulled me out of the ideas that I used to hold about how I needed to be perceived in order to be accepted and loved. So that was just a bonus. Not That's not in the book. That was just me freestyling. Before I close out this introduction, I must also state that this is not a Christian book, though I am a Christian. I affirm along with the late James Cone that Jesus is the truth of my story. Yet and still, Jesus is not my only story. I also carry the story of someone whose ancestors were enslaved. I carry the story of estrangement, isolation, and depression in my family of origin. I carry the story of a people who, despite what they faced, resisted and carved out pathways for them to exist. I carry the story of women who have faced seemingly insurmountable obstacles in the boardroom, the classroom, the pulpit, in the streets, the bedroom, regardless of what we were wearing. These stories come together in compounding and sometimes contradictory ways to create a new meta narrative that helps me make sense of who I am, where I am, and how I see the world. Reese, and we're going to play this song in a little bit because I think it's really important to help set the context for this book tonight. Recently, I have been absolutely in love with the song by Jamila Woods called Holy. In this, in this song, she borrows from Psalm 23 in the Lord's Prayer, which is found in Matthew 6 and Luke 11 of the Bible, that lyrics explicitly state and name the holiness bound up in Black women's bodies as they are 
We already are. What a radical notion. It is radical because it is a notion outside of many theological frameworks that stress original sin or inherit unrighteousness, particularly regarding Black women. In the United States, the Black body is the definition of sin. But Black women, because we live at the intersection of race and gender-based violence, and more if we are differently abled, queer, or resource poor, or all the other marginal intersections. We carry the stigma of sin in a way that Black men do not. As a result, many of us, even those outside of mainstream faith traditions, hear me now, regardless of our faith traditions, Black women, we approach our lives believing that we are flawed and evil at our core. We didn't need the church to tell us that because society tells us that every single day. Mostly because of what our bodies make grown men do. I want you to understand that. A lot of times the inherent sin in unrighteousness is attached to sexuality because of what, because men won't own up to their desires and say that this is what I desire and put that on black women and put that on women, period. What would happen if instead of continuing to internalize a lie based on white heteropatriarchal supremacy, we took a position that we are wholly divine, in fact, reflecting the image and wisdom of God, this God who is big and black and beautiful with this beautiful Afro and these even bigger earrings, right? What if we reflect that image? What if we understand that it is the separation from this knowledge that forms the basis of our internal pain and turmoil? Black women, and so for any black women on this call today, we must adopt this position about ourselves. Black women, if you are reading or listening through the pages of this book, I invite you to consider not only the truth and sacredness of my words, but of your own, which is why I say it's the gospel according to black women, not black women, because my truth is my truth. And it's very similar to the truths of other black women, but other black women also have different truths and different ideas and different experiences. And so I didn't want to essentialize our experience by saying black women. I wanted to make it Black woman singular, understanding that there are a lot of similarities and overlaps. What truths do we continue to suppress to make others around us feel comfortable? In what ways do we continually step back or step aside to accommodate others without taking into account how others have failed to accommodate us? How will we rectify these tendencies by moving, walking in the greatness that God has already said is ours? And if you're not a Black woman, which I assume is the majority of folks on this call. But your mother is a black woman, your partner is a black woman, your coworker is a black woman, your friend is a black woman. A black woman is running as a candidate in your city or county. You supervise, pastor, teach, are, are otherwise surrounded by black women, or you live in a world with black women. So that's all of us, right? That's all of us. I implore you to resist every tendency you have to push back or discount the words on these pages. Before you ask yourself, is our testimony, our experience, our epistemology valid? Believe that it is. And then I think even as you wrestle with, is this valid enough? Ask yourself, why are you asking the question? Would you ask the same question if James Dobson wrote this book? Or if Joe Biden wrote this book? or any other powerful white guy? Would you ask your same questions about validity and epistemology if the face was different? And if the answer is no, just read it and let it settle and struggle with it, write about it. And so we're gonna do a little bit of writing tonight, but really challenge your assumptions and why some things, some 
things that are being said here might make you feel uncomfortable, including me saying that God is a big black woman with a big, powerful Afro. So my friend, Christina Cleveland, I hate to name drop. She just came out with this really wonderful book about God being a black woman. And I can't wait to read it, but I'm in the midst of, you know, writing prelims. And so I can't pick it up quite yet. But when I do best believe, <laughs> I'm just so ready for my my complete Christian experience to be liberated and delivered so I can understand God being a reflection of me. So I promised a song. I promised that we would play this song by Jamila Woods. And so that's what we're going to do because I feel like it really helps to set the tone of what we are talking about, what we're going to talk about even more. So this is called Holy. Give me today my daily bread Help me to walk alone ahead Though I walk through the darkest valley I will fear no love Oh my smile, my mind reassure me I don't need no one Woke up this morning with my mind Set on loving me With my mind
So we've been processing a lot so far. So we're going to have a little opportunity to do a little bit of writing and reflecting on what we've been thinking about. So as you reflect, I'm going to put these questions in the chat too. As you reflect on the words of Wood's song, and as you think about the introduction and all of the things that we said already tonight, what types of images and thoughts come to mind as she professes her truth? And then how has your truth as a Black woman or a woman of color either been affirmed or invalidated? And if you're not a Black woman or a woman of color, how have you either participated in or witnessed the invalidation of other voices? I'm gonna read a couple more pieces. I'm gonna read, cause I want us to do a little bit more writing and reflection. And so these second set of readings are really centering the person of Eve in the biblical text. The first piece that I'm reading is called Angry Black Woman, which isn't specifically centering Eve, but I think she can be here too. And this is on page 61 in the book. How should I compose myself? Now that you have killed my children, raped my mother and beat me beyond recognition. You forced me to live in dilapidated housing conditions where the rent is higher than the two bedroom in the suburbs. Yet you pay me less than the minimum wage and threaten to take that if I complain. I am only of value to you with my tail high in the air. So I bend over and twerk some more even though I am tired and my feet are sore. How should I compose myself now that you've taken my loves and denied me of my God-given liberty? I will put a smile on my face and laugh with my head pulled back like those high society girls who pretend as if they don't have a care in the world, knowing that my anger is powerful enough to destroy. I will not bury this godly rage on the inside of me. I refuse to keep silent about it any longer. But I know that you are afraid of my anger. You are afraid of my righteous indignation. You are afraid that what you have done to me, I will do to you. You fail to understand the power dynamics in this complex relationships of yours. You have the military, the police, and Congress behind you. And all I have is my God, my hands, and a multitude of voices standing with me. And so with my hands, I will go to my God who can handle my anger, who won't force me to be silent, who listens intently to my cries and will deal with my oppressors in time. And I will raise my voice along with the multitude of other voices centering black liberation, refusing to be silent about our oppression to make others comfortable, even if in doing so, it makes us look angry. The second piece I wanna read is called Zipporah, which is on 62 right after the poem that I just read, Zipporah. Ebony colored skin that matched the dark of the night. Her hair, the kinky curly type, twisted up out of her face, adorned with a scarf to keep the flyaway curls from falling back in. Garments of royalty clothe her petite body. Colors of purple, ruby, emerald, and gold reflected off of her already rich skin. Brass bangles that her father made for her clinked together as she walked, making an even louder sound as she chased her small children through the arid land. Purse lips, 
hips wide, smile bright, and her heart even brighter, heated only because of the rays of the sun bounce off of her beautiful black skin, blinding others who only wished they could stand out like so. God took care of her dissenters, those who mocked and laughed as she walked by, those who called her ugly as she smiled, those who said that she just needed to sit down and mind her place as she spoke from the depths of ancestral wisdom they themselves did not possess or had long ignored. That blackness that other women despise and men secretly covered makes the world go round. Though no one would ever tell you so. This blackness birthed in the richness of the Nile River Delta where the sun is bright and the soil is succulent and the bounty of life is as present as it was when God commanded the waters to be still. This blackness is our beginning. To expel it will surely be our end. We're going to flip over to page 74 and read one of my favorite pieces. I remember when I wrote this, I believe it was 2017, and I was preparing for a sermon at my church when, when I used to preach on a regular basis. Well, not really regular, like once or twice a year, um, but I was preparing for the sermon, and I remember reading the text, and it was on First Kings, and it was about, it was the, um, it was the the episode where Solomon is praying for wisdom and I'm doing this research and I realized the parallels between um, this text in first Kings with Solomon praying for wisdom in the text in Genesis three, where the same wisdom that Solomon is paying for uh, praying for Eve is penalized for just catch that. Right. The same wisdom that Solomon is, pay, is praying for that God says, because you asked for this wisdom, I'm going to give you all these other things. Plus the wisdom is the same wisdom that Eve is penalized for. OK, so I remember writing, writing the sermon and then writing this text with that realization and a lot of realizations that followed that. Sister girl, how they had your name locked up for years. Said it was you who ate the apple, was led astray by your lust, bringing on the integrity of the world with your seductive touches and questioning wandering eyes. They said it was you who'd been entrapping men, bending and folding them in the grip of your thighs, tantalizing them with the fullness of your breast, leading them to hell with the way the sun radiates off of your tightly curled 4C black hair, whether it's locked, picked out, or flowing down your back. So they told you to shut up, put up, dial it back, stay in your place, be seen and not heard and accept your plight as ordained by God for your sin. And we believe them. We let them drag your name through dung itself. We distance ourselves from you. Disassociated ourselves from the most intimate pieces of ourselves so that we would not succumb to the Jezebel, Sapphire, Delilah stereotype. But we've gotten older and a bit wiser. We've had children of our own, the stretch marks in places we didn't think were possible. The graying of our hair, see, <laughs> while we still maintain our youthful vigor of days long ago, the way our thighs jiggle now as we move. We've learned some things living in our bodies, being in touch with our full selves. And we found out they lied. They told the biggest story of all and us all believing it was you, Eve. You who destroyed the world, broke up homes, impregnated yourself, knocked yourself unconscious, pushed yourself down the flight of stairs, played the whore, brought misfortune upon yourself because of the way you dress, the way your hips moved too much, the color of your lips, because of where you were, because of who you were with. Now we know 
The story is only beginning to unfold. The truth, your truth was always here in plain sight in between the folds of the pages. Though it took a trained eye to see because we've internalized the life for so long, we needed help to be brought back to you, brought back to our truth. The truth we bear as women, young and old, rich and poor, black and white and Latinx and queer and all of us. To see our stories, our identities so intricately wrapped together, though patriarchy has damaged us, forced us to choose sides. None of us are going free till all of us get free. None of us are going free till Eve, sister girl, mother, daughter, friend, from whom all living things come forth, who birthed the world, though the world despised and rejected her. Till Eve rises up out of the pages, reclaims her narrative, tells a story that is just beginning to unfold, to be silent no more, to no longer be a passive or active participant in our destruction. The whole world is at stake. The whole creation groans with groanings that cannot even be uttered for our liberation. Eve, sister girl, we stand with you. We got you. We believe in you just as much as we believe in ourselves, in our own stories that we hold in our bodies, just eager to come out. I'm going to do one more quick one called Not, and then we're going to write for a few minutes. Not, it's on page 88. Not, not a slave, not not beheaded, not uppity, not hood, not a sellout, not too strong, not a pushover, not unqualified, not overqualified, not too ambitious, zealous, or religious, not aloof, not aggressive, not angry, not Jezebel, mammy, nor martyr for the cause, not uninformed. I am not, and I refuse to be your expectations, limitations, or vision of who you need me to be. But you, you are also not the sum total of someone else's expectations. You are not small, not broken, not corrupt, not ratchet, not spoiled goods, not loud mouth, not weak or passive, not insufficient. No, you are the embodiment of your ancestors' dreams. You are more than enough. So my question, my remaining question for us, how might customary Western read white cis heteropatriarchal renderings of sacred texts reify the violence that Black women and other women of color experiences? What opportunities do the response found in these readings offer Black women and other women of color? So how do customary renderings of sacred texts reify the violence that black women experience in other women of color. So as a, like a current context, even though Kim Kardashian is not a woman of color, think about what she's been experiencing in the public eye this week with her um, estranged spouse and some of the, th the really horrible things he's been saying and doing that's super, super scary. For, for all of the women who have suffered and are suffering with domestic violence, that's like his actions are like, they're really, really scary. So, but, and you think about like this idea of ownership, right? That I own you, you belong to me when she is her own person. Problematic as all get out, but she's still her own person and has, is entitled to her own body and her own choices. And so I want us to think about how, thinking about those texts that I read, thinking about the experience that we see surrounding her, how have customary Western 
renderings of sacred texts? How do they reify the violence that Black women experience, that women of color experience, that women experience, period? What opportunities do the responses found in these readings offer Black women and other women of color? I want to open it up for questions. And so we spent the last almost hour and a half with me sharing different pieces and us writing. What questions, what remaining questions do you have before we close out our time in 11 minutes? I One of the things that I was struck by as I was reading through the book um, was the, the complex paradox, you know, of of being a black woman in America. And I, I'm sure that I've run into that and I've heard that from friends uh, who are black women or women of color. Um, but the way that you captured in the book, and there are several things that came up. One is, is the sort of dynamic or dialectic of silence and speech, of wanting to work through a feeling the need to be silent and also at times wanting to be silent and yet also finding writing as a way of bringing to voice the things that are deep within inside of you. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if I have a question in that, but just it's sort of that the experience of writing and in particular the experience of writing as a black woman, I wonder if there's more to, for you to share that, you know, with, with, with us in terms of what that's meant for you. What's it meant for you, in other words, to write these books? Mm-hmm. And um, the other piece is sort of connected to me was it connects to that was, I mean, I also have written and I know that it can be, it can be an experience of in which you truly make yourself vulnerable and you part of there, I get the, I got the feeling as I was reading through that part of the kind of therapeutic element in this or the liberative element, or maybe both, of this process was precisely to process the pain, grieve the pain, and move on from the pain. And yet, at the same time, you you know you're making yourself vulnerable. So I just wondered about that experience for you, how that's been, what's it meant for you to write these books, um, and would love to hear a little bit more from you on that. Sure. And I'll try to remember both questions. Those are big questions by themselves. I think with the first one, the silencing piece. And so I don't think it was ever a desire to be silent, that that was something that I wanted. I, I, maybe I'm soft-spoken, maybe I'm introverted. I'm not really sure. Right. Um, Somewhere in between, I live somewhere between those things, right. Those, those ideas of what we say around what people, who people are and how they show up in the world. Right introverted? Maybe. I'm not sure. Um, but I had always felt like I had something to say. And I felt, I felt that I was called to ministry quite young and, you know, always had wanted to preach by time I had gotten into college and felt like I had some things that got um, the divine had laid on my heart and any church I had been in. So I, I never got a chance to do that. I never really got a chance to, even though I had heard great feedback around the sermons and the sermon deliveries never really felt like I had an opportunity to really 
thrive in that space that I really wanted to. And so I, I continued to write. And so I blogged, like my first self-published book was in 2009. And I self-published that then because it was therapeutic for me and I needed a space to process what I was going through. After that initial book, I felt like I needed a space for me to to talk and to process the things that were on my heart that I felt could be helpful for other people and not really giving, not really having a space to do that. I created a space for myself through blogging and writing to talk about some of the things that were on my heart, because even though it wasn't a pulpit in a church, no one could take it from me. Were they going to do take down my blog? Yeah, that's not going to happen. And so I felt like it was a space where I could have agency and authority in ways that I couldn't have it inside of institutions, particularly as I have, like I've talked about on this call, like really standing up for the rights of those who are LGBTQ. Most pulpits wouldn't let you preach that from the pulpit. Most churches won't. I've talked about being separated from my soon-to-be ex-husband. Most churches won't let you talk about that. Most churches won't allow Black people, Black women, even white people to be who they are in their full messy selves without sitting someone down and reprimanding and punishing them. And so in this space that I've created with the Aya Collective, I get to be all of who I am. And so like, and and not be punished because I'm not falling inside of the lines that some church or institutional organization wants me to fall into. And so it's not because I wanted to be silent. It's because I know that institutions are silencing agents, not just the church, but academia, nonprofit, government, wherever you are, they are silencing agents for those whose um, identities fall outside of the status quo, unless they're using those identities for their own purpose. So I went to North Central the small Bible college, downtown Minneapolis, they never called on me for nothing, right? But I'm on the face of their brochure when I was an undergrad, right? Not because they loved Ebony, but because I was serving a purpose, right? And so I think that's the only time when we end up being able to be utilizing these spaces is when our skin color, when our gender, when our identity that lies outside of whatever normative dominant normative ideas are when it um, satisfies an agenda. And so when I worked in nonprofit, um, it, the nonprofit I worked for did a lot of coalition organizing, which was great, great nonprofit, great people, great people that work there. But I always think about the, vo- the people that they're bringing around the table to testify at the Capitol, to testify at Congress, to testify in all of these spaces. Are you calling these people because they're needful period, or you just need their testimony to help further your cause or your mission. So I think that's that, that one question, creating the space where I could, I could be me without having to feel like I have to sit down because I was having some midlife crisis or whatever. Um, the other piece, the vulnerability, I love being vulnerable. I feel like that's when I am most creative I feel like that's where I feel the most connected to the divine, where I can throw off pretense and I can be my just full, unapologetic, vulnerable Black girl self. And some people are uncomfortable with that. I don't know what to tell those people because in order for me to be me, I feel like I, and I mean, there's layers to this, right? 
so not to every person I go up and just exposing my whole self and all my story, right? That would just be unwise and pretty stupid, right? But the the writing in the book, I feel like gives me an opportunity to be vulnerable in ways that sometimes I'm not able to do face-to-face. And even in the vulnerability here, there are things that I code, there are characters that I hide, there are things that I'm doing. So as not to expose all of me, but to expose the pieces that I'm most comfortable with. Cause I don't need people all up in my business. I don't want that. But, and so it's like, it's, it's, I guess it's carefully orchestrating the level of exposure and vulnerability that I'm most comfortable with. And I love it. Cause I feel like that's, that's where people get delivered. That's where people, that's where other black women, when I'm able to be me and let down the gra- let down my guard, it's like, I love the Lord and I have problems with the Old Testament and I had to put the Bible up on the shelf because it was messing with me because all of the things that I was reading, when I'm able to say that other black women get free. If I don't say it, we stay all locked up in oppression. But when I like this woman who's been following Jesus all her life says that I can't read the Bible right now, this is me. I can't read the Bible right now because y'all justifying a whole lot of oppression and domestic violence. And I have to put it on the shelf so that I can distance myself in this season. Um, Then other black women are able to talk about their own experience and other women of color and other people, period. So, yeah. Well, I just, just as a, as a concluding, like aside, I, one of the things that I really loved about your book was it's clearly your story, which is not, has connecting points to my experience, but is not my experience. And yet I didn't feel like a stranger in the way that you shared yourself. Like, that's what I mean. That was what, what I thought was so powerful about the way that you told the story. And I really love that and really appreciate that. Yeah. Thank you. I just wanted to say thank you again uh, for, for leading us through this time of reflection, for letting us interact with, with your book. And uh, we want to make sure we keep this avenue and conversation open. Uh, so let's talk about that Eve serpent. All right. <laughs> I might have to preach it from scratch again to have it. All right. Well, maybe we can figure something out with that. That'd be great. We might have to. Cheers to everybody. Thank you.